Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday evening. Uh, a little tired, but let's do this. I have a full plate this week in many areas. So let me, especially, have to mark a lot of papers in college. So let me... Um, do see, take a whack at uh, doing the bio this week. Um, today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by my friends the Pollocks in Columbus, Ohio, by Paul Pollock, in honor of his wife, Kathy, uh, who's, I guess, their birthday. He says, has been my Aisha's child for 45 years this week. That's a long time, but wait a minute. It has two dates, April 4th and April 11th. Long story. So uh, I guess if you get married in two days, that does not make you a bigamist. <laughs> but uh, I'll talk to Kathy, who's also a very good uh, friend of ours. And uh, thank you for the uh, sponsorship. They have another one coming later this week. And um, it's nice to know we have friends all across the United States and elsewhere. Let us um, uh, appreciate it. Uh, next week, I'm, uh, I'm out of uh, sponsors, but this week we're covered. Uh, it's, you know, the last couple, it so happens, the last couple times, I veered a little bit in talking about famous rabbis. All there is to talk about different indipi- individuals, piquant individuals, shall we say. Because I did Al-Kharizi the other day, and I did Montalto and all the rest of it. And so I guess I'm just in that mood. And I asked Ari Elbaum, when he sends me the list of who's the yard sites were, so I saw a name that doesn't fit the rabbi mold, but fits the unusual person mold. And I think I'll talk about him as Nathan Birnbaum, who died not that long ago, 1937. See, we're talking about someone... Who's a Jewish intellectual, and for and um, a very strange person, um, or maybe not, um, who became a famous Balshuba. Let's put it that way. At a time that no one ever heard of that word, and it's in a weird way. So again, I'm dealing with not some famous rabbi or something like that, but a famous uh, Jewish intellectual. In my mind, and all I can ever do is tell you my interpretation. The key word over here is utopianism. Utopianism. Every person who's uh, got a little, who's not just a, a thick uh, shtick flesh, you know, just a Philistine, who's a totally materialistic, is only thinking about his, you know, uh, physical welfare and that of his family and that sort of thing, which is understandable, but if that's where it goes, that's like a, you know, uh, a Jew, we have very respect for anybody like that. That's a behemoth. People have to have a certain idealism. Now, if you're religious, you have a assigned idealism. Whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, you have a utopian situation called Mashiach of some sort or another. Messianism. You understand? The Jews call it this, the Christians call it that, the Muslims call it that. But it's all based on the idea that this world can't be all there is. It can't be. This world stinks so bad. It's full of so much junk. A good God wouldn't do this. Unless you say, it's just the opening, you know, it's a prose door, whatever you call it. You know, it's, it's the beginning. But eventually, there'll be a better world where we're in perfect happiness. After all, look at the world. It doesn't have to be 
all the junk we have today. It's not necessary for people to try to kill each other. But the world is, is the way it is. The human beings are the way you're at. That's the, the human uh, nature. But as if it's a big Zionist, you know, is, is, is this uh, the uh, always, forever will be like this? That's pretty bad. So I repeat, if you're religious, long ago, thousands of years ago, at the beginnings of these religions, they came up with one version or another of some kind of a utopian ending. That the first half of the story is bad, but the second half of the story is all good. Each religion, each 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 culture does it its way. We Jews have our way, and Gomorrah. Now, <clears throat> what happens when people no longer believe in religion? So this started in the 19th century, get it? Until then, the Christians were religious Christians, the Muslims were and still are religious Muslims, and the Jews were religious Jews. So in that time period, for thousands of years, many centuries, each one had their utopianism, in which they poured their idealism, and they dreamed of a better world. And that's a sign, like I said before, that you're more than just a stick flation word in the behemoth. But what happened? See, I'm trying to explain this in a way that will make sense. What happened when people lost their faith? You know, in starting the 1800s, they no longer believe in God. It's atheism. It's science. Get it? It's science. Uh, it's a new knowledge. Uh, that's the real reality and the only reality. So what happens to the idealism? So some people say, I guess I have no, you know, uh, I have no idealism. I'm only here for Olam Hazza. And that's it. You know, most people aren't like that. Get it? Most people aren't such chams that just is totally, you know, thinking I'm here today and gone tomorrow and, and whatever. Uh, even though as atheists they believe that, but there's something in them, we would say, you know, there's something in them that, 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 that militates against this. Now, um, in the 19th century, um, this problem was there. And what happened was um, secular <clears throat> philosophies popped up, which, which were utopian in nature. In other words, in a Hanabi, they don't believe in God. They don't. Therefore, all the rest of it. But they do believe in utopia. But in other words, because they say things are so bad in the world, but it doesn't have to be that way. That, that kasha they have. The only thing is, they say, yes, we can bring utopia with science. Get it? We can bring utopia with science. After all, people could come up with that. Right? Uh, after all, science can do anything. So sooner or later, they'll find the cure for cancer and for this, that, and the other. And sooner or later, they'll be able to make you live a couple hundred years. And sooner or later, everybody have 10 cars and 20 uh, houses, you know. And uh, you, you see, you, know, you don't need God. You get it? You don't need that. <clears throat> You'll be able to have a utopia, an Olamaba, right here and now. And this has been the basic idea, of one form or another, of the modern atheistic utopian philosophies, all of which promise a glorious future. Uh, now, the government, the government, the Jews are the Jews. The, the, um, how should I put it? The question becomes political. In other words, how do you make this happen for a Hamunam? So I would say, just speaking in general terms, just in general terms, uh, what emerged in the 19th century would be uh, certain narrow forms of utopia and more universalistic ones.
And different people signed up with different ones. The narrow forms of utopia would be nationalism. Get it? Right now, things are bad in England. But one day, England will be Gavaldic. Right now, things are bad in Germany or Russia. But you'll see, Russia will turn into a Ghanaian. Germany will turn into a Ghanaian. They'll introduce a socialism, uh, free cars, you know, whatever you want. It can be done. Because we Germans, or we French, or we Spanish, you know, are so Gavaldic that we can create a utopia. You follow and it has been the general trend of, of nationalism. We have it in America in a certain way, a, a, a nicer way. But that's the idea that, you know, within the national group, we can create a utopia. Um, ah, what about the human being follies that get in the way of that? Uh, people fight each other and hate each other in the classes, and you're rich and I'm poor and I hate you and all the rest. The nationalists would say that we can transcend that with the proper national feeling. You understand? If we organize things in the right way, economically, politically, and otherwise, we can transcend all that. And we can mamish bring into this country, whether it's Switzerland or Holland or whatever it is, a utopia. Not today, but tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow. That's always the way it is with utopianism. It's never today, but it's always, uh, it's not a million years away either. It's a few days from now. Okay? That's one mahalach. The second mahalach was more universalistic. It's not a word in the nature, it's a human being, it's human mankind. This would be your Karl Marx, get it? And that sort of thing. Um, the Karl Marx would say, you have to organize everything according to a certain economic way, and then the whole world will be one big people, and everybody will be happy, and, you know, all the resources will go where they need to go. From those who need it, from those who have it, to those who need it, and so forth and so on. And as we know, the attraction of Marxism in various forms was huge. And the third way would be what I call liberalism. You get it? Liberalism would be, you know, you're not going so far as Marxism, but you believe that political freedom, get it? Um, and uh, public enlightenment and education will create this. That's more or less the American style. You also had it in Europe as well. Now, what about if you're Jewish? Yeah, here we go. What about if you're Jewish? How's this, Nogea? This long introduction I'm doing to Nathan Birnbaum. Um, if you're Jewish, if you're from... You have the from utopianism. And so on and so forth. Now what about if you're not from? Okay? What about if you're not from? And it's the 1800s. Early 1900s. Because our hero was born in 1864 and died in 1937. So basically was, uh, what, in the 70s when he died. Okay? Lived to be, uh, I guess that would be 73. Okay? So, and he was mamish in this period, what they call the fin de siècle, the end of the era. So what's, what happens if you're Jewish? How did this hit the Jews? Now I'm telling you, I'm discussing with you, an aspect of Jewish modernization, which is very interesting, because I'm not simply talking about people becoming from and I'm from. I'm saying, let's say that happens already. And masses of Jews in Western Europe and Central Europe became unfrom, as I think we all know. So how do they organize their mental world, their mental universe? Do they simply think, I'm unfrom, and now let me just concentrate on my Gashmias and all the rest of it? Or do they dream of a better world? Now, if you're Jewish, you have an extra reason to dream of a better world because of anti-Semitism. You follow? Being Jewish is a double bummer. And uh, in the 19th century, uh, you had the uh, paradoxical realities that on the one hand, the Jews in most countries of Europe got civil rights, complete and total um, legal equality with everybody else. But then it was followed by a strong social anti-Semitism, um, which was reaction against it, 
which freaked the Jews out. Um, and why is this happening? So if you're Jewish, you dream of being not from, but, but Jewish. I'm not referring to those Jews who converted. That's a separate group, okay? There are plenty of those. I'm referring to those Jews who, for whatever reason or another, no longer believe in God or something like that. It happened a lot. Uh, but on the other hand, they realize that as long as they say Jewish, whatever, there's going to be a lot of discrimination, anti-Semitism, the life is going to be very unpleasant in certain respects, even though in other respects they'll have legal equality and economic success, possibly. So it won't be a perfect world. How do you get a perfect world? How do you get a perfect world? <clears throat> so some of them, many Jews, uh, went for liberalism, as did our heroes we'll see today. Uh, many of them went for nationalism. So that's your assimilation. Get it? I'm a, the famous Yekka of old. I'm a German, but I'm German-Jewish, but I'm mainly German. I'm a little bit Jewish. I'm mainly German. I'm loyal to the Kaiser. I'm loyal to Germany. This is a character we all know. But you had the same thing in France. I'm French. I'm a little bit Jewish, but I'm French. But I'm really French. You understand? Or I'm English. Or I'm, uh, you know, whatever country you want. I'm Dutch. I'm Hungarian. Oh, my goodness. The Hungarian uh, nationalism that the Jews had. And so forth and so on. The only country you didn't have this was Russia, because Russia is so anti-Semitic. So a bunch of mamzerim, how could a Jew say I'm a Russian patriot? You know what I mean? But the other countries said, listen, we give you civil rights or whatever. But in return for the civil rights, we want you to identify with the nationalism. And so if you're Jewish and you're Italian or German or French or English or this and the other, part of your utopia is one day we'll have an economic wonderful here over here and we'll have a nice society, everybody's nice to each other, and there'll be no anti-Semitism. The Jews will be fully accepted without having to convert as 100% members of society, more or less the way we have a situation in the United States of America today, I would say, in my opinion, more or less. What they dreamed about in Europe but never happened did happen in America, even though it's not perfect here either. Okay, now, uh, so these are mega trends that I'm talking about. Some Jews, as I said, went for the nationalism, some Jews put their trust in liberalism, what we would say today, American democracy kind of art. So in other words, you have a political system that will respect the rights of the individual as an individual. So even though I'm Jewish, I could even be a religious Jew, but the state will uh, and the society will respect me just because I'm a human being. And the third way would be, broadly speaking, would be socialism, Marxism, one kind or another, in which case there's no room at all for religion, but anti-Semitism will go away. I hope I haven't confused you. I just gave you a two-minute or two, longer than I expected quick, quickie uh, march through modern philosophies that faced Jews at the beginning of the uh, emancipatory era. In other words, these are your great-great-great-grandparents if they were in Western or Central Europe. Now, the thing is like this. So if you're Jewish, which way do you go? Uh, our hero, Nathan Birnbaum, was born in Vienna. This was the capital of the Austrian Empire. We call it the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Austrian Empire, you can look at a map, you Google it, it no longer exists. And it was an empire that covered a whole bunch of countries that was acquired through marriage and conquest and things like this. So it's a, it has a lot of different countries today that used to be part of the Austrian Empire, one big country, one big empire. So you have Austria, that's one country. You've heard of um, Hungary. And Hungary was a lot bigger at that time. That's another country. Then you heard of today of Czech Republic. That's another one. Then Slovakia. That's another one. Then uh, Transylvania, which is now part of Romania. That's another one. So you had Romanians there. And then you have 
a big part of what they call today Serbia. I'm not finished. Then they have another country that used to be part of called um, Corinthia. I think that's a country today. And uh, uh, Slovenia is now, I think Trump's wife was from Slovenia. Not Slovakia, Slovenia. You see what I'm saying? Croatia was a separate country. So all these different what, pieces were all part of one big thing called the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And part of it was Polish, Galicia. So Galicia, which was a big chalik, uh, which is Polish and Ukrainian, that was also part of the Austrian Empire. Throughout this whole place was living Jews. Okay? So they're not the same kind of Jews. The, and Hungary is the Hungarian Jews, and Galicia, the Galician, is the Polish Jews. Okay? Uh, I don't say they're radically different. In um, Bohemia was the Czech Jews, you know, the Bohemian Jews. Now, um, our attention turns to Vienna, which is the capital. That was like New York City. It was every kind of different nationality was there because the empire, people moved there from all over the place. It's part of the empire. So who lived in Vienna? Germans, because that's the Viennese. You got your Hungarians moved there, your Czechs, your Slovaks, your Italians, your Polacks, your Romanians, and Jews. What kind of Jews? Here's very interesting. Our hero was born in 1864. So in other words, he was born in Vienna when the Vienna was his most important era in Jewish history, I would say, when the Emperor Franz Josef, the Kaiser Francis Joseph I, the only, was the ruler. And uh, and he was the longest uh, ruler in, in European history. Looks like Queen Elizabeth of England is going to knock him out from that. But he'll be the second longest. Because he was there from 1848 to 1916. That's 68 years, almost. Um, that's a long time, right? It's almost 70 years. And without going through too much of an arichas, by the time you get to the 1860s, Franz Josef turned favorable to the Jews, shall we use that term? And that means if you lived, as our hero did, in Vienna after 1860, um, the Jews had it good, but it's complicated, as we shall see. It's complicated. Um, now, what kind of Jews live in Vienna? These are all very interesting. There was no single type of Jew. They're all different types. Like you have in, in Baltimore, Lakewood, New York, and all, you know, you got this group, you got that group, different Kehillas. Broadly speaking, you had your Bohemian Jews, your Czech Jews. Uh, that's one type. Then, and they mostly became what we would call today conservative, not orthodox. Then you had um, your uh, Hungarian Jews that moved there, of which some of them were uh, very from. They formed like a Hirsch type Kehillah, you know, saying the Shifkasa. They had those type of Jews there. And then you had your Galicianers who moved there. Because after all, if you're in Galicia, you want to move to the capital city for economic reasons or other reasons, Vienna's part of your empire. And so all during the 1800s, more and more Galicianers moved to um, Vienna. Now you have to understand, this is a little boy coming from a small town uh, to the big city. Because you live in Galicia, there's little villages and junk like that. And uh, you come to Vienna, especially in the 1800s, it's becoming like the, the center of culture, one of the most important cities in the world. Okay, in every, in every possible respect. Art, science, literature, this, that, and the other. Um, so, the point I'm getting is the Birnbaum that we're talking about, he came from Galicia, uh, which is Polish Jews. And he actually, you know, as is always... By the way, you know who was the same thing? Sigmund Freud, same thing, same thing. And and the family was from, when they moved there, uh, matter of fact, if you want to go down to it, I think his father was from Rubschitz. You know, Naftali Rubschitz, the famous Hasidic Rebbe. So the father was from Amish, a Hasidic area. 
Hasidic area. And um, uh, what do you call it? And his mother, I also had Yichus, I think she was related to Rabbi Kivig or something like that, you know, Shem and Rokech, you know. But so was everybody. That didn't make a difference because, like everybody else, you come from a small town, you move to a big city like Vienna, uh, your parents are from to some degree, but where do you go to school? Day schools didn't exist. This was outside the uh, mentality of the Orthodox Jews, the traditional Jews. Only somebody like Sam Rainfield Hirsch, most exceptionally, you know, had day schools um, in, in Frankfurt where he was. In Vienna, they did not. And so the result is you go basically public school. Certainly, they might have had some Jewish elementary schools that they sort of had, but anything as far as uh, junior high and high school and afterwards, what they call in Germany a gymnasium, which is uh, like from roughly the sixth grade till you get your bachelor's degree uh, from college, these there were no Jewish ones, and they're all Christian or secular. So what happened 99% of the time was the kid, boy or girl, moves there from family, could be Hasidic, could be Misnag, could be anybody, could be very learned. By the time they go through the gymnasium, they come out not from, in fact, they come out atheistical. Atheist, get it? Because it's the 19th century, Darwin has just proved that religion doesn't exist, and uh, the scientists can prove it, and the Bible critics can prove it. So forget religion. You're post-religious. Right? It's not even atheist. The whole idea is, is ridiculous. You're post-religious. And that's who our hero was. He, he born, come from a Galiciana family. They moved to Vienna. He goes to school there. Certainly goes to uh, a good, by the way, a good gymnasium. So like we would say today, boys Latin, you know, something like a good. So you get a good secular education. If you're getting a good secular education, then you're getting an anti-religious education. Now, this is interesting. Listen closely. Uh, Austria, Vienna was going through all kind of twists and turns. In the 1860s, I don't want to get too I've already taken too much time, but the heck with it. I'll just do what I want. Um, in Austria, was a famous Catholic country, super Catholic. But in the 19th century, there was a reaction against Catholicism for a whole bunch of reasons by the Goyim. And they created what they called Austrian liberalism. And the Austrian liberals, as I said before, wanted to embrace more like an American, British type thing. And so they they passed all kinds of laws depriving the Catholic Church of its power. You understand? They forced the emperor to go along. And the church went into desuetude. And therefore, in schools and places like that, liberal and 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 um, uh, material atheist, uh, you know, secular, that's the word, uh, dominated. So you got a first-class secular education. The question then becomes like this. So here's somebody, if he's born in 1864, by the time he finishes, you know, um, okay, university, um, a gymnasium, so what are you, uh, 20 years old, something like that. So figure you're in the early 1880s. He actually finished a little bit earlier. You're in the 1880s. Um, you're Jewish. Uh, okay, great. So now go to university, get a degree, and then get a job. Right? That's what you do. The question is, which way are things going for the Jews? Okay? Sounds like everything's great from a secular perspective. Uh, and he would grow up and become an Austrian. And, you know, uh, he doesn't have to convert, but uh, religion won't be part of it. But on the other hand, he'll be like all these others. They would strongly assimilate into Austrian nationality. Well, there is no such thing as Austrian nationality. It was an empire with a lot of different groups. So the only thing you could do is be loyal to the emperor. But 
you, if you're Jewish and you have the extra problem of deciding which national group do you side with. Are you going to side with the Germans? Uh, you side with other groups? Now, um, without getting too complicated, even though it's a very complicated story, the liberalism started going down by the 1880s for a whole bunch of reasons and started to be replaced by what you and I would call extreme right-wing politics, part of which was the fairish anti-Semitism. That is to say, there was a reaction against the liberalism and the universities and the professors and the intellectuals and the Hamunam started advocating against the Jews and in favor of um, revoking civil rights and they formed parties called the anti-Semitic parties. So basically, I don't have to explain it to you. So many Jews moved to Vienna, that caused anti-Semitism. I hate to say it. Now, um, our hero, like many others, once he finished this gymnasium, went to P for PhD, and he got it in law, right? He studied, uh, you know, he, he took, uh, you know, that's what most uh, Jews did. He got a doctorate in law or philosophy. Uh, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? It is a PhD, but it's in, you know, what's you specially? They figure you get a job in law, you get a job with the government or something like that. Uh, fine. So so here's somebody with a what we would call today an excellent education, right? An excellent education, secular. Uh, but because of his family background, and this is my opinion, coming from very strong Jewish roots, so when the t now that you're, you have your degree and you wrote, what you wrote in life, if you're um, idealistic, where you have some dreams of a utopia of a better world. Uh, what is it going to be? Are you going to go to socialism, Zach? Or are you going to go to liberal, Zach? Or are you going to go to the national thing, right? Nationalist, Zach. In Austria, because of the clash of the different nationalities that was taking place in Vienna and elsewhere in the empire, each group wouldn't have more power than the other. Uh, so, uh, it was like a, a, a cultural battle zone. Most Jews would side with the Germans. Our hero said like this, I do believe, this made him different, I do believe that there should be a utopian better world, but uh, I'm going to identify not with German nationalism, but with Jewish nationalism. You hear that? Jewish nationalism. Now what the heck is that? There wasn't a Jewish nationalism. Well, there started to be. At the time that he was in Vienna, in university, a very interesting time, and you started to have from Eastern Europe all kind of intellectuals moving and settling in Vienna who were post-religious. A lot of these be masculine from Russia. I repeat, masculine from Russia. So there's no question that they're all atheists. Let's get that straight. Nevertheless, coming from the, these guys all had yeshiva background or something like that. For example, the famous writer Smolenskin was there at that time. And they are looking around and they have Jewish pride, and so they say, to heck with this. If the Russians can have Russian nationalism, and the Denmark can have Denmark nationalism, and the Fakakta Serbia and, 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 and Montenegro can have their nationalism, we're not worse. You know? Am Yisrael, chai. That kind of thing. So it's strange. It's a strong Jewish feeling, but it's not religious. Okay? This is the world in which he grew up in college and all the rest of it, and with which I identified and became passionately attached. And so... At this period, when he's in his 20s, he gets married. In the period when he's in his 20s, basically, he gives up a law a career. So he, he becomes a person who is not a regular guy with a 9-to-5 job. Because if he had, then he would have had a stable life, and he'd be very boring. We wouldn't be talking about him. 
But instead, he threw himself into um, the world of Jewish press and literature and writing about Jewish nationalism and ideas. How can we Jews um, better ourselves, organize a national culture, create a secular Jewish national culture? You hear that? Uh, this became a very popular sort of thing. Mamash at the time I'm talking about in the 1880s and 1890s, in Russia in its way, and in Vienna and places like that in their way. This is what we call the real, what emerges eventually as cultural Zionism. This is what the firm really hated. Because what you're doing is you're creating alternative Judaism. You understand? You're saying alternative Judaism. And the basic Yisod goes like this. Jews are not to be understood as a religion. Jews are understood as a nation. So it's not like this. Jew versus Christian versus Muslim. That's not how the equation goes. Instead, it's Jew versus Englishman versus German versus, uh, you know, a French. It's a national thing. I, how do you de- deny the fact that Judaism has always been very religious? You say, that's, you know, like the rocket ship, when it goes up, it drops pieces of the rocket ship uh, as it climbs higher and higher towards the moon. So religion was part of the thing to help us survive the Middle Ages. But now that we're past that, we can drop that part of the rocket ship. We don't need it anymore. You understand? And I can't tell you how popular this idea was among many Jewish intellectuals, uh, not today, but that time, and it really swept people, and, you know, for those who, to whom it appealed, which was a minority, it really caught their imagination, and they had all these dreams, and the Mamash were utopians, that there'd be some kind of gewaldic new Jewish culture, I repeat, new Jewish culture, not based on the Gemara, and Estrema, Kapata, all that stuff, not based on the Bible, eh, just like the modern European culture isn't based on that. You know, it's new. We Jews will create something new. And so we don't have a Shakespeare. We'll get ourselves a Shakespeare. We don't have uh, famous painters. And we don't have famous, uh, you know, secular this and that. And the other. We'll get one. We'll create one. You understand? This was the dream. So I, I repeat, this is this is really, literally an apicorsis. This, this, you know, this, this is really like, you know, you don't need God. You know, Judaism could do very well without God whatsoever. Thank you very much. Uh, and it's it's a, a, a rice garbite, you know, it's thought through, it was discussed. Uh, now, at the same time, to, to speak about them positively, they're very aware that anti-Semitism is rising. And although the Jews had gotten civil rights, they thought that once they got the civil rights and the legal equality, that would be the end of anti-Semitism. They would live like in America, and it wasn't like that. Instead, Politicians, newspapers, um, whole movements rising more savagely against the Jews than have been in the case in the past. You and I, sitting from our perspective today, know this led to Hitler. Now I'm talking 50 years before Hitler came along, but still, you you know you could sell smell this this ain't good. And the only reason the Jews in Austria Hungary did not uh, suffer from uh, all this anti-Semitism, which has gotten bigger and bigger, was the Emperor Franz Josef protected the Jews. That's not good. You understand? I mean, it's good he protects them, but if that's what you're relying on, it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. Uh, the liberals protested against it. The liberals were crushed in the elections in Vienna and elsewhere. And um, the Jews uh, were now living in a freaky situation. I can live in Vienna. I have legal rights. I can go to college. I can get a job, all the rest of it. But I'm reading in the papers, hell with the Jews, kill the Jews, this and that and the other, you know. Uh, and it's okay. So if you want to know an example what I'm talking about, imagine if, and this is not, I'm sorry to say, this is not a far-fetched scenario, imagine if all the PC is dropped 
And all of a sudden, all these people that want to come out and say, down with the Jews and the Jews rule the world and all the rest of it. It's not just the extreme right-wing nuts. Uh, but what if it becomes mainstream? What if you start seeing this in the uh, in the regular, you know, CNN and uh, places like that? I mean, literally, anti-Semitism. Mamish, okay? And at the first, people say, oh, how can you talk like that? After a while, they get used to it. It becomes part of the Sprach. This is the strange world of the 1880s, 1890s, uh, in which our hero arose. And uh, he threw himself into the world of um, these kind of intellectuals, and uh, he started clubs of Jewish students to have pride, and um, he started several newspapers. Today, you would call a guy like this a blog. You get it? You call him a blog. That time, you, you, you founded magazines, and you wrote articles right and left, and you hoped that your ideas would take off. Now, his ideas didn't take off. How many people are into the world we're talking about? This is the world of Zionism before Zionism. These are the guys from Mechadish Zionism. As a matter of fact, Nathan Birnbaum created the word Zionism. He's the one who came up with that term, which is kind of a secular word. Why Zion over anything else? Zion is simply Hartzion, you know. I mean, I'm not against Hartzion, but, you know, why that mountain over anything else? Why not Har Maria, you know? It's a, it's a cute term he came up with, Zionismus. Uh, and and other terms also he created. So imagine a guy who does not have a job. You see, he's got a law degree, but he's not practicing law. <laughs> and he's got a wife and children. How's that work? That means, you know, you live hand to mouth. And for his whole life, money will be a problem. That'll be a weak spot. Uh, didn't come from a rich family. Uh, always living hand to mouth. A guy like this is always having to borrow. You know, i I got to write this article, and it's going to be Mechadish something Gavaldic. And I've got to go and now give this book review, and it'll have a big impact. That's like a guy saying this, i got to give a podcast, man. Oh, if I don't do the podcast, the whole world will stop. i got to do a blog. If I don't write this blog, the whole world will stop. It's not true, but that's the way the person sees it, you see? I worry about the fact that you, where's your 9-to-5 job? How are you paying bills? Uh, we'll figure it out. So so you're always living uh, hand-to-mouth, borrowing from friends, all the rest of it. And very, it's what you used to call Luftman. She understand a person lives from the air. This is a, a, a Jewish intellectual of a certain type. Now, um, these guys already in the 1880s are saying, listen, um, the Jews have to develop their own nationalism because we're not going to fit in the other country. They don't like us. We're too many, and we're Jewish, and we're obnoxious, you know, and we, we are who we are. And uh, we need our own country of some kind or another. He never quite totally worked it out. You know, it was all theoretically, but he was feeling kasher yamashish, you know, they were trying to feel their way into like what would be a solution for the Jewish question, as they used to call it, the, the, the Jewish problem. Uh, ah, you tell me it's a Galatia problem? No, it's a Jewish problem. The government of majority, the Jews are not minorities. It's a Jewish problem. Now, um, see, he, here's the world in which he's uh, living in, all the rest of it. By the time he's in his 30s, so, um, you know, these ideas are starting to, to gel. And... Um, then some guy who was uh, in Vienna and who had no shaykhs to, Judaism, to Jew, Jewish issues whatsoever, quite the opposite, all of a sudden decided that he's going to get involved in this, and that was Herzl, Theodor Herzl. But Theodor Herzl was the antithesis of what we said. Theodor Herzl came from a rich family. Uh, he went, I mean, they both had good educations, but Herzl was sort of like a, a, a spoiled uh, from a kid. He, he lived very well. Um... 
and and he had a let's put it this way, he also went to University of Vienna and got a uh, a, a degree in law, uh, but he made it in the real world because he got to be eventually you know they all live by writing all these guys try to make a living by writing, uh, I wouldn't recommend it unless you're really that good, make a living that way. If you tell me it's extra, if you tell me you make a living at writing, it better be good. And so uh, Herzl actually made it to what we call the New York Times. That's a different story. He became eventually, eh, by the time he was 30, became eventually a correspondent, like we would say today, foreign correspondent for the New York Times. In this case, the New York Times of Vienna, uh, the Wiener Five Press, which was a big newspaper. From, for Central Europe, it was like the New York Times. It was a liberal newspaper. They were liberal, you know, saying liberal. And uh, he got to be the Paris correspondent. So that's a pushy, cushy job. Now, Herzl was less Jewish than Birnbaum. You understand? That's who these guys were. I told you, once they went through these university systems, they dropped all the Jewish stuff. And Herzl also is post-religious, total atheist. But he had a much greater success in the real world than our hero. And uh, as I said before, once he became the Paris correspondent for a real paper, that gave him a lot of prestige. You know, when he wrote an article, it's read by, uh, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post readers. Uh, whereas our guy is writing, you know, some obscure, uh, you know, journal, like I said, a blog read by 10 people, by, by 50 people. Let's say it was read by 50, 60, 100 people. Let's say it was 100 people. You know, it's still nothing. You see what I'm saying? He said, oh, no, but those 100 people are the ones who count because they're the ones who are having debate about whether Jewish culture should be this or that and the other. Yeah, but nobody else even knows about it. Now, my point is like this. When Herzl came along in 1895, when our hero was around 30 years old, he was like a, 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 a New York Times reporter who discovered Judaism. You get it? And he had a lot more talent. And he was tall, dark, and handsome. And, you know, he was well-to-do. And uh, he created the Zionist movement. And where our guy, like Birma, said, wait, wait, where, where you been? We've been talking about this for 10 years, all the rest of it. Herzl said, I never even heard of you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he had a bad personal relation between the two of them. And so ironically, Herzl went on to create what we called the International Zionist Movement. He thought in much bigger terms because he came from much more Hushua background. And frankly, he knew the Geisha world much better because he moved in those high circles. And he actually understood, I would say, the Geisha mentality uh, much better. Because in order to succeed the way I described, a guy like Herzl had to know how to get along among the guy. That's just the fact that it is. He understood the mentality of the Europeans. And in a way that um, our hero couldn't understand, Herzl understood PR. Because he was a member of the press. At that time, you didn't have the internet, you had the press. And that was the PR. And so he created something called Zionism. And he made a Zionist Congress. And it was a big splash on the front page of the New York Times. And... Mainly, he got the Geisha leaders of the world to take it seriously. That's my point, okay? Which is something that Nathan Birnbaum and a hundred guys like him could never do. They're a bunch of schleppers, you see? Uh, they hated this about Herzl. And they said, you know, you can't Johnny come lately, and, you know, you just discovered the moon. And we've been talking about this for a long time. While you were, uh, you know, totally divorced from Jewish matters, uh, none of that mattered. Herzl, you know, created a Zionist movement, took off, and he dropped all these guys. They had bad personal relations. I don't have to go into all the details. Uh, so suffice it to say that, ironically, this person, our hero, who had preoccupied himself with secular Zionism, uh, 
got badly disillusioned or had a bad experience once Zionism ironically actually started to happen because Herzl created a Zionist movement with a Congress and a bureaucracy and press and he went around and met all the leaders of the world and it was a big fancy schmancy business and look, at the end, Herzl died very young at 44. Before he died, he accomplished something unbelievable. The British Empire offered him a shtickle karka, you know, Uganda. I understand they didn't take it, I, I get that, but I want you to understand what this means. He he really BSed everybody. He got England to say, we will give you a country? Because England at that time was so huge. They had such a great empire that they had extra Medinas to play with. And so uh, they said, you know, here's Kenya. I mean, they called you again. I think it was Kenya. doesn't matter. It was a whole territory of East Africa. And uh, if you want to, the Jews could move there. I'd say again, it's like amazing. Suppose I were to tell you, suppose I would tell you that it was a big deserted island placed in the middle of the Indian Ocean with a good climate. Let's say it's 100 miles by 100 miles or 200 miles by 200 miles. And uh, it's empty. And England's like this. The Jews can make a Medina here. Uh, it's not a big deal. Especially if you're talking about 1895, 1900, whenever it was. Uh, if you're worried about a Hitler coming down the line. And Herzl, and like our hero, saw something like this. You know, they couldn't tell Hitler, but they saw it's getting bad. Uh, what'd be wrong moving all the Jews from Russia elsewhere to that island and from there you figure out how to take over Israel you know that kind of, uh, of art well it's a crazy world I'm describing but for our purposes since I'm trying to focus on Nathan Birnbaum and the times in which he lived the important part of the times in which he lived everything I'm talking about is called fin de siècle the end of the era the, the 30 40 years before World War One, which changed everything so uh, he got out of Zionism and um, he actually became a cultural Zionist in which he said the Icarus is not to have a state. The Icarus developed a proper Jewish culture and trained the Jews to be proud of themselves and create a, a culture that will match the German culture and the British culture. All kind of Meshuggan ideas, which were meant well because these guys are utopians. They're not thinking about their own Parnassa. They're not thinking about you know their own uh, uh, health insurance, all the rest of it. They're thinking, not anybody asked them to, they're thinking about Klal Yisrael. Now, they're not from, I say again, they're atheists, so that's bad. But you have to, you know, but as I said, a yid, they definitely have. They're thinking, they're putting their best kochas, whether the ideas are dumb or not dumb, but put that aside. They're giving their best kochas to thinking about the future of Klal Yisrael. That itself is a big plus. You get it? That itself is a big plus. To concern yourself with the matzav and see if Klal Yisrael, you and I don't do that. Right? You and I don't do that. That's just who he was. So he couldn't help thinking in large idealistic terms. <clears throat> but the more the, him and Herzl had their disagreements, the more dissolution became a Zionism. He started looking for another way to organize you know, Jewish life. And eventually this leads him in the early 1900s to other attempts to create an autonomous Jewish culture for the masses of Jews that live in Europe. See, if you looked at a map of Europe, let's say in 1905, so... Let's say you called it a Jewish map. There's a big blob in the Central and Eastern Europe, whatever the, the, the borders are. I'll name two countries, the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Between these two empires is a big blob of Jews, 5 million, something like that, you know, a huge, you know, 6 million, a gigantic number. And many of them are in bad situations. The one in Austria-Hungary was not so bad, except there was terrible poverty, terrible poverty in Galicia. 
uh, but, but Russia was bad news, right? That's Poland and Lithuania and Belarus and Ukraine. Terrible. So what do you do for them? Uh, so, you know, Herzl will say, move them to Israel, make a country in Israel. That's the Zionist way. These people say, that's never going to happen. Like uh, Birnbaum, that's never going to happen. That's not, not in our lifetime. LMI, you have to create the Jews here and now to build up a Jewish culture. It should be Jewish schools to train kids in Jewish pride and Jewish uh, uh, identity and, you know, uh, hold their head high and stuff like that. Not religious. Not religious. And eventually, uh, so he was looking, if I didn't tell about his arts, he was looking for an ideal um, utopian strategy that would produce a utopia. Now, these were dumb ideas, but I'll say it again. Kavanosaritsuya, he, he, he meant well. And eventually he came with the idea of Yiddishism, get it? That all the Jews of Europe speak Yiddish, or at least in Eastern Europe, even with different dialects. The Jews should create a secular Yiddish culture, and this will be the language that all the Jews use, and this will give them pride because they'll create their own science and literature and all the other secular stuff that's in there. And even organize the Congress. The funny part was he couldn't speak Yiddish, you know? But, you know, this is what he thought was there. Now, part of the reason is the following. Part of the reason is the following. After he got disillusioned with the Zionism, he wanted to go into politics. How did he go into politics? Austria-Hungary, let's talk about Austria. Hungary was a separate unit. Austria, which included Galicia, was a democratic country. By that, I mean they had elections for a parliament. I mean, the emperor was on top. But it really was a parliamentary country. It was. You know, there, there was, he had individual freedoms for the most part. It was pretty good. Uh, one of the places is Galicia, uh, especially Eastern Galicia. Now, without getting involved too much in the complicated stories, the elections there are nationalist battlegrounds. These are so, so you're running in an election to be elected to the parliament in Vienna, even though you live a thousand miles away in Eastern Galicia. Uh, who are the voters over here? You got your Polish and Ukrainians who hate each other. That's how it goes. For uh, again, I won't go into the reasons. Uh, but boy, do they hate each other. There's a movie a couple years ago I saw where they showed the the, the poles uh, were burned and shechted by the Ukrainians in the middle of the Holocaust. In other words, while the Jews are having a Holocaust, the Ukrainians did a stickle side Holocaust on the Polacks. It's uh, amazing. So uh, and the Jews are in the middle. So every election was always tricky because should the Jews vote for the Ukrainian guys. They'll get the Pollocks angry. They'll vote for the Polish guys, they get the Poles angry. Uh, and, uh, by the way, the, the Hassam Sover's son, earlier, decades earlier, ran on the Polish ticket. Get it? All the Jews voted for him at Shimon Sofer, but he then totally fought, totally fought whatever the Polish won. So, our heroes are like this. I'm not, the heck with the Poles, the heck with the Ukrainians. There's a quarter million Jews living over here. I'm going to run for parliament. The Jews should vote for me, and I'll 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 represent the Jewish interest. You get it? So it's not Zionism moving to Palestine, but let's fight for Jewish rights here and now. It's a little bit like it's not the same thing we have now in New York and some other places. Some from guys that were elected to I don't know the city council or the, the state assembly or things like that. You know what I mean? And they say yes, we're representing the from interest. Right now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It depends. Everything depends on the situation. But this is his approach. And so the point is, he moved from Vienna to Galicia. He he retreated. He he went the opposite direction from his parents. But he went there as an intellectual guy, a well-known writer, uh, uh, a PhD from the University of Vienna, so a guy. 
and to campaign uh, for parliament. He actually won the majority of seats, but he lost because they did uh, dirty elections. There was famous, he called Galiciana elections, with like saying Chicago elections, you know, uh, Baltimore elections, <laughs> things like that, you know, Lakewood elections. It's, I know what it looks like when they when they cast their votes, but it looks different when, when they when they count the votes. You understand? Uh, so, but meanwhile, that means that he moved and lived with his family for a while in the middle of the Jewish Galicia. You see, and he saw the real Jewish life there. And the first, he was blown away by it because he masses of Jews, in spite of all their problems. See, I'll tell you again, from he was not, and God he did not believe in. But he had obviously Israel, and he's worried about Klal Israel. And these are gigantic virtues, which hold very high in the in, in, in even from Judaism, right? And we'll see how Marsha Bamutim Eventually, he pulled him back. Um, to Yiddish guy. So while he was there, um, he started thinking. It's unclear, but you, know, you see, he was very impressed by what he saw. He tried to translate these in secular terms. How can we create all this Jewish vitality that we see in all these towns and villages and places in Galicia? All this Hasidism. How can we how can we channel this into a productive, as he saw it, secular kind of Judaism? So the Jews shouldn't just be hovering on shtibbles and things like that, but they should go and create a, a vital Jewish uh, you know nation within the Austrian Empire. Uh, that will defend Jewish rights and Jewish interests and Jewish culture. Uh, so, like I say, he tried the, the Zionism. I'm sorry. The, well, he tried the Zionism. That didn't work. Then he tried this uh, uh, secular Yiddishism. That eventually didn't work either, as we know. Uh, then he had a big conference and all the way. We have to go into that. And so now we're talking about 1910, 1912, 1913, just before the First World War. And he went to America to speak. You know, he was a famous speaker. And so he's a super intellectual. The guy we're talking about is Egghead, right? Egghead. Uh, but he's writing always in German. Uh, maybe later picked up Yiddish, mainly in German, because that's who he is. He's a graduate of the University of Vienna. But he's always writing about Jewish stuff. Um, although he knows what's going on in the regular world, totally, you know, so socialism, this, that, and the other. He disagrees with Marxism. So he's the kind of guy that you would find very interesting to talk to for a while. After a while, you wouldn't. Uh, and when the, when the ship to him, so let me put it this way. I told you before that the guy was atheist and all the rest, and he was. But clearly, the person I'm describing who has this obviously role, I don't care how misguided it was, who has this obviously role, who's preoccupied by worrying about Claudius' role, who's worried about the, the, you know, the basic questions of, of what will be the future of Claudius' role, uh, you, you know, all this sort of thing. That's a Yates or Do you get what I'm saying? It's the Yates of Tov inside the Yates of Har. Maybe the Yates of Har is the most powerful, but the Yates of Tov is also there. And what I'm trying to say is, these are Pintle Yid. And he himself later in life said like this, from early age, he was a convinced atheist, but he had Sveikas. <laughs> you get it? Sveikas means like this, maybe there really is a God. Nah, nah, it can't be. Like that. So... Uh, these Sveikas, you know, usually was able to suppress. Now, Suffolk is a religious doubt is a very interesting phenomenon. Every group says like this, it's good for you to have religious doubt. It's not good for me to have religious doubt. A religious person says like this, uh, do you ever have doubts that God exists and so forth? No, never. 
because it's just anything would be terrible. Now, the same with a secular person. You say a secular person, do you ever have doubt maybe God really exists? Oh, never. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Never. It's, it's, uh, but really, it's a sign of inquiring mind. Inquiring mind. And so the result was that uh, uh, he had a religious experience, he says, on a ship coming to America for a speaking tour. And he basically felt like, you know, God is talking to him. But of course, you know, like other people, you don't know if this is real. Maybe he just had pizza last night, you know. Like, what is this? And he, But little by little, he found this fakus getting bigger and bigger. Do you hear what I'm talking about? He's an atheist having fakus, and the fakus are getting bigger and bigger. That's why it's an interesting story. That's why he's a fascinating figure. Now, this does not happen overnight. And he didn't know what from Judaism really is. I mean, all of his life he was around these people, because in Vienna and Galicia you see him, but he never really got near every religion, because a secular Jew, it's, you know, regards religion the way a Hasidic Jew would regard atheism. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a taboo. You know, so I don't have nothing to do with it. Right? I don't have nothing to do with it. Um, but it, it was eating him. And I'm not sure how this works. I mean, you know, different writers have tried to explain this in different ways. I'm not sure myself. But let's say he believed that he had a religious experience and God called to him. Um, I, I'll, I repeat, this is what he said, what he believed. I'm not saying it happened. I'm not saying it didn't happen. How would anybody know? You have to feel special. Get it? Me, myself, and I. If I honestly saw this tomorrow morning, I feel that God called David Katz, come here, I want you to do this. If it wasn't just expression, I really think, I'd say, wow, I must be really special. I must be really special. Get it? And uh, the person we're talking about was a great thinker, intellectual. I think he, he, he felt that this is the way he's being drawn to religion. And in the religion, he will now try, try to find the utopianism. So try, having tried the Zionism and tried the, uh, the parliamentary liberalism and then tried <coughs> the Yiddishism and all that business, now, as we get to 1910, 1912, 1913, slowly but surely, you know, he pulled in the direction of a belief in God and therefore the solution to the problem of Claudius' role will have to come through a religious way. Okay? Now, this is very tricky because from Jews, believing Jews say, yeah, we totally believe in Mashiach, but then that's the end of it. Then you, then you close the discussion. In other words, you compartmentalize and you assign it away, but you live your life like the Mashiach is not coming right now. Uh, after all, if the Mashiach was coming right now, you wouldn't have spent 20 grand for Orlando. You know, you would have said, I'll spend the Pesach hotel in Yerushalayim because the Mashiach will be here the day before Pesach. Right? Did I ever tell you this? Years ago, whoa, when was it? Long ago, I was here in the Samshol and Rabbi Stern, the Mashkiach and the Kamenitz, was there. And I don't remember everything he said, but I remember one story. And that was, he said that he went collecting in England. And uh, it was the summer. And uh, he pulled up to some rich guy's house, who's a, you know, who was a giver. And as he pulled, as his driver pulled in front of the house, the guy had a driveway or something like that, and was a family station wagon, and was loaded to the gills. 
They're going on the annual vacation, what they call holiday in England. Going for the holiday. You know? And it was all everything was packed away for a camping trip or something like that. And uh, so it was inconvenient time. However, the Bala boss being a nice guy, he immediately got out of the car. He said, oh, Rabbi Stern. He took him in the house. He gave him something to eat. And he wrote him a nice check. Uh, no complaints. But Rabbi Stern said like this. Remember, he's a mashkiach and communist. So he said, you know, uh, I see you're all ready. He said, yeah, I'm ready for the annual holiday and so on and so forth. Did you plan it? Oh, we definitely planned it. We have everything worked out and so on and so forth. And he said, Mr. So-and-so, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question. Suppose I were to tell you the Mashiach was coming tomorrow morning. What would your reaction be? And the guy said to the rabbi, he said, listen, rabbi, he said, I'm a firm Jew like somebody else. And I'll be happy the Mashiach is coming just like everyone else. But I'll be perfectly honest. I would have to ask myself the following question. 2,000 years you don't show up. And Dafka on the day of my vacation, you know, this is when you show up. And the rabbi said to me, he said, you know, you're, I, I, I admire you're an honest man. You said it was an honest answer. You get it? And so what I mean is, if a person is really a messianist, that he said we should work uh, and believe in Mashiach and, and, and work to create a utopia and all the rest of it, uh, it's one thing to say, I believe it, another thing to say, so what's the plan to actually bring it into happening? What's the plan? Okay? Uh, now, uh, in our case, as I said before, here we're approaching the First World War, and like Avram Avinu, and here's an interesting part, he is reasoning his way towards uh, doing something that would have been unthinkable, and that is coming to believe in religion, in the Jewish religion, the Orthodox Jewish religion, which is a leap. Uh, Avram started out when he was three, and didn't make the full jump till he's 48, that's what the Ghazal say. So that means Abba Mavina went to church when he was 20, when he was 30, when he was 40. He went to Avodazara uh, churches. Only when he was 48 did he mamish make a total break. You know what I'm saying? And I, uh, on the contrary, I totally get it. So do you. You know, not many people say at a young age, you know, they're willing to give up everything and the family and all the rest of it, you know, for some feeling that they have. But slowly but surely, the conviction invested Abraham and and eventually he made the painful move. You understand? Know he made the move. He said, "I got to follow Amos. I got to follow Amos." But don't think it was Pushit. So it's the same thing in the case of our hero. Uh, it's a slow move, and it was going to be very embarrassing. Clapping his friends and all the rest of it. Uh, I can't emphasize it here. Let me turn this on one second. Okay, let me pick up. As I was saying, he. Uh, it's like an Avram Avinu case. Let me put it this way. A lot of people become Bali Shuper for one reason or another. Um, and I don't know. You know, I've never been in that situation. But I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think that people who are super ensconced in anti-religionism and then slowly but surely, you know, argue inside themselves, kicking and screaming, and say, no, it's got to go to the direction of, of belief in God. You understand? In other words, I don't know if they go Derech Um, so a hard struggle, and in which you have a lot of pushback mentally, uh, you know, Yetzito versus Yetzahara. Uh, now, uh, again, I could be wrong, but I just have the feeling it's not usually how it goes. Uh, but it certainly wasn't his case. Okay? It certainly wasn't his. It's not like he always had an idea for this sort of thing. 
He had a Natiya for the opposite. Alpha became. He found himself being pulled in this direction and at a time when it went against the, all the, the, the culture. You know, today, somebody comes from, it's a lot of other people who shared that experience, right? You, know, you, you want to have a big group. At that time, there wasn't a group. There was hardly anybody. I mean, very few. Very, very few. And there was nobody who was like a major figure in atheism that now is turning around and, be, and you know, beginning to, uh, becoming from, and what do you gain from it? You understand? Just ridicule. Uh, and uh, I, until today, the historians don't like him because he did the wrong thing. But nevertheless, in these years before the First World War, he, he found himself inexorably pulled in the direction of belief and embracing Torah mitzvahs, but slowly and not everything, right? Slowly, not everything. So he moved back to Vienna. The people knew him, and they said, you know, Hagam Shobamlocha Babanavim, you know, what, what's happening to him? He's, he's not working on Saturday anymore? Now, I wasn't there. I don't know what started first. Did he start to keep kosher? Because that's how it happened. It's little by little. You get it? And he wasn't proud of it. He just did it. Because he he didn't know any, what, 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 what Frumkite is. He had no idea. He just knew this seems to be the authentic thing. I'm sure he must have been influenced by living in Galicia and, and, and seeing it with his particular sensitivity. He had to get past the dirt and the filthiness and the poverty to see the beauty that lies within the Galicianer life. I'm serious. I'm not being funny. Uh, that means there's a certain type of intellectual. As I say before, the only big, as far as I can see, the only big thing he had was obviously throw, which is a big, which is a big deal. Right? It's 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 a big quality that a lot of people don't have. Uh, on the other hand, he didn't see this as just something personal. Uh, he he sees this as part of his agenda to, uh, to bring a utopia. Except now it's going to have to come through the from way, uh, which is the Mashiach time. Um, how does that work? It's never been clear, right? how the messianic business works. But all this is happening, as they say, in the years, uh, let's say 1910 and 1914. Very slowly. And uh, how do you make a living? Yeah, you know, he must have had some kind of job with the Associated Jewish Charities, you know, with the Federation and the Vienna. I mean, that's, I believe, how he made whatever money he had. Money was always a problem. Get it? Money was always a problem. But he's always turning out articles and this sort of thing. Now, um... Then comes the First World War, uh, which had a cataclysmic effect on everything. All the um, utopian ideals that had been felt in the century or the 50 years before World War I, uh, when things look like it's going to get better, the, the Marxists in the Marxist way, the liberals in the liberal way, the nationalists in the nationalist way, uh, the Zionists in their way, all of a sudden the World War I exploded all this because it was tens of millions of people being killed and gassed, and uh, the civilian populations are going through hell. It was, it was like the world turned upside down, and uh, the forces of hell were unleashed. And the Jews took it among the worst, because it wasn't Hitler, not at all, but uh, Galicia became a major battle zone, and if you were Jewish and you would get out of there, you would get killed by one side or the other just from the war. And the Russians invaded Galicia and killed people and raped the women and all this. It was terrible. Uh, that's why they fled into, into the to Vienna, into the interior of the Austrian Empire, and places like that. And his kids, he had three sons who were drafted in the Austrian army. The Austrian army was very poorly led. They had gigantic casualties, you know. It was just, like I say, the old nice world of yesteryear was gone. 
in my mind, I'm just sharing my opinion here. I think that coming together with him and the way he had slowly but surely now found God and felt that he was called by God in some fashion or another, and now you have this world cataclysm, I think he must have seen this as a gogomogog of some kind or another. That's my opinion. You know, th this fits the pattern of pre-Messianic, okay? Some kind of gogomogo. However, it's not a Messianic era that's going to be brought by liberalism because as someone who was concerned with the Jewish condition, he didn't believe in liberalism going to be anymore. European liberalism, like Herzl, they say it's never going to be strong enough to protect the Jews. He didn't believe in Gaisha nationalism. He didn't believe in secular Jewish nationalism anymore. That's the fight he had with Herzl. And by this time, he had none of that left over. You see? He certainly was not a Marxist. So, what's left? You have to find your idealism, your utopianism, inside Jewish religion. There is such a thing, right? However, here's the problem. What are the Jews doing to bring the Mashiach? Like, we want Mashiach now. What are you doing about that? Uh, in the Jewish tradition, we should, you know, get active in that, in the sense of trying to make Klaus already for Mashiach time now. This is what they mean um, by If I ever do the Tefillah podcast and get to that, I'll try to explain that. That, you know, there has to be a pre-Messianic kind of preparation on the part of the Jewish people. Uh, now, you know, what are you doing to, to do that? For some reason, the idea of, let's say, the Mizrahi, which is, we'll set up a state and we'll try to make it from, that didn't appeal to him. If anything, the older he got, the more anti-Zionist he got. It became, you know, in terms of his hashkafas, I wouldn't say uh, Satmer, because that's not true. He didn't believe it's, it's, it's a, a plot of the devil. It wasn't somber, but it's very anti-Zionist. Let's put it that way. Very anti-Zionist. And he remained that for the end of his life. So, where's it going? I want to be from and find within the from Judaism, you know, the keys to um, save the Jewish people, number one, from the anti-Semites, and number two, from the destructive nature of modernity, which is which has destroyed so much Yiddishkeit. But how does one actually do that? See, if you're a from Jew, you have no way to fight against modernity. You just like this. We'll create our own little yeshiva here, little island here, a little island there, a little island there, and hope to survive like Noah's Ark. That's what it is. But a guy like him said, no, we have to destroy the flood, you know? have to take it on. Now, how do you actually do that? And being who he was, and being as a European intellectual of that particular period, uh, the idea that he came up with all this is what he's writing in the First World War when everybody's going to hell when 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 the death and destruction and disease is everywhere and he doesn't use the words go go mago but I, I, like I said before I'm convinced that that's how he saw that the Mashiach time is Mamashir if the Jews will respond okay it's a basic theory of Judaism that a lot of people could have been Mashiach but the door wasn't Roy so how do you make the door Roy isn't that an interesting approach? Now, only a guy who was an egghead idealist like him would think of these terms. But little by little, um, it, the word got out that this major figure in atheist Judaism has now flipped and become from, and not only become from, but what's attracting him is the Galtzianer things, the Hasidic things. He, didn't, he never became a Hershian, not at all. He didn't like that. 
he had a, for various reasons, he had contempt for the term Derek Harris. And he never, heard, I don't believe he ever heard about the yeshivas, the litvish stuff. That's not what turned him on at all. Um, he's in Hasidus. Now, it could be because his father was Rupshitzer, you know, originally. You know, I think there's a lot to that. But whatever the case is, you know, um, he, he, he uh, little by little, the fact that he became a Baal Shuba got out there. And so here you have a funny business. It's World War I. Uh, death and destruction are everywhere. Inside the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there's a lot of Jews who are trying to stay as far away as they can from the front line. And uh, they're still carrying on their own internal conversations. And one of them is, you read in the press, you hear this guy became a, a Baal Shuba. You know, he used to write his uh, articles in his non-from days when he had that blog. Uh, his name was Acher. Get it? Like Elisha Benavuya. Isn't that interesting? Because he identified with Acher, which makes total sense for someone who had become atheist. I get it. And now, you know, did you hear Acher did Teshuva, like they say now, right? And uh, one thing that's interesting, and some historians have dug this up recently, uh, <coughs> he developed it. He met he met a, a a nephew of the who was it? Vishnitsareva. His name was Toby Hurwitz. And uh young Hasidic guy. I think he met him like in nineteen fourteen at the beginning of the war or something like that. And uh they hooked up and they developed a correspondence. And this guy, the Hasidic guy, was really into him and he saw him like a superior person. He said, I'll help you uh, navigate the world of the orthodoxy. Because we all know unfortunately, that the number one problem with Orthodox Judaism is the Orthodox Jews. Everybody knows that, right? Um, by the way, it's not only Jews, everybody said it. Chesterton said, the problem with Christianity is no one's ever tried it. I mean, you know, it's a thing. We, the religion has ideals, and then there are the people in it. And um, this nephew, the Vishnu Rebbe, knew all the Hasidic politics and all the rest of it, and he helped him publish now, start publishing it from publications. Uh, one of the first things he does is publish a letter to the Frum Jews. Now, he himself just became Frum, which is, what are you doing, bring Mashiach? You're just looking for a life of ease. Um, which is true, right? Which is true. Why are you going to fancy Pesach Hotel, we'd say today, something like that, you know? Why are you worried about, you know, your uh, stock, uh, your stock uh, you know, portfolio and all the rest of it? What are, you, what are you doing to bring Mashiach? Correct? Now, uh, now, by the way, there are plenty of Frum Jews who do live that way, but there are plenty of us that do not. And, you know, he was, why do you make it that, you know, economics is everything, and all the rabbis have, this is what he writes, all the rabbis have to be slaves to the local balabat and the richie riches and the other things like that. You know, why are we corrupting Judaism? Now, I'm sure a lot of people say like this, who the heck are you? You weren't even from five minutes ago, and now you're coming in and trying to tell the from world how to run itself. That, my friends, is how it goes with big intellectuals when they convert. They immediately assume, because of their particular unique experience, that they're able to tell everybody else how to operate. That's what it is. What's interesting is this: these Hasidic guys that he knew by correspondence in Hungary, I don't know exactly how they worked it out, but they got him introduced, as soon as the war was over, to uh, Jakob Rosenheim from the Agudo. And Jakob Rosenheim said, yes, wow, this is, would be a big catch for the Agudo. At this time, this is right after the First World War, the Agoda really had in mind to be the alternative to the World Zionist Organization. Okay? Now, it never succeeded, but they wanted to. 
Now, what do I mean? Consider the following. I don't know if I've ever said this before. Theodore Herzl pulled off something amazing. Even though it was smoke and mirrors, a bunch of BS, doesn't matter. Does not matter. I'll tell you what I mean. Jews lived for centuries and centuries all over the place. Some Jews live in Italy, as we know. Some Jews live in France and Turkey and Poland and Germany and England and Holland and here there in the other, North Africa and so on and so forth. Was there ever an attempt, even a Habamita, to bring all representatives from all the different Kahilas together to represent, to represent Claudius Roll per se and to try to be Messiahites of what to do for the matzo of Claudius Roll as such? Did this ever happen in the 1200s, the 1300s, 1415s, 1600s? It's not even thought about. Whether it's because of dangers of travel, I, it's not what is even important dangers of travel. It wasn't in the Hava meeting, you understand? Here we are in exile, and when Hashem sends a Mashiach, then things will change. Until then, we're living here, the Sephardim are living there, the Polish are living there, the Tunisian Jews are here, the Yemenites are down there. You know, we that, that's just the way it is. We can never get together. Um, what holds us together is our common religion. What holds together our common culture. We do feel, that we do feel. But there's never an attempt to do what I just said, which is what any other national group does. Get together as a group to be Messiahites on how to take care of the problems within that group. Uh, now, and, I mean, the number of difficulties involved in that are insuperable. Uh, the attempt to create a Sanhedrin in the 16th century in Spas is like a tiny fragment of what I'm talking about. And that never happened because there was opposition. <coughs> so there couldn't be a central body of Judaism. We know this. Now Herzl, who was coming from nowhere, but he knew PR, he said, I'm going to create something called the World Zionist Movement. And uh, we'll have a Congress in Basel, there'll be another Congress here and another Congress there, and we'll get it covered by the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the rest of them. And what, and what will it be? You and you and you are going to be the three guys who represent the the the, the Jews of De, of um, Holland? Let's say, who elected you? Nobody. They elected themselves. But when you come there, you'll be sitting in a seat which says the Jews from Holland. You guys will be represent the Jews from Greece. You guys represent the Jews from Romania. In other words, they're not really elected, but nevertheless, when we come into a room and the cameras are there from the press, you see it's a Romanian, it's Hungary. It's Italy, it's uh, you know Turkey, it's uh, England, it's Russia. Looks like it looks like Claudius Roll. Get it? Looks like these people are actually represented, uh, elected by the groups, by the the constituencies of those countries, and that they're the actual representatives of the mass of world Jews. Uh, it fooled the, the Goyim, like I said before. England offered Herzl in 1904 a shtick They offered him a piece of Africa. As a fact. Later on in World War One, it, it it was a, a good enough bamboozling that it got the British to offer the Balfour Declaration. You cannot deny that. So appearance is sometimes more than the reality. Um, and based on this, the Zionist movement always claimed and still does, you know, that they represent the Jewish people. Um, you know, they know it's not a perfect system with elections and all the rest of it, but de facto they represent the Jewish people. And the world always took them for serious. Now, this drove the from the Haredim crazy, and they say they don't represent us, and therefore they try to make a parallel group called the Agodis Yisrael. 
And the idea was, we are really the representatives over here. Now, to be perfectly honest, the good is also not elected. Get it? You know, but nevertheless, if the Chavetz Chaim showed up, if this one showed up, the Ger Rebbe, now, you know, they had big followings. That was the, the theory behind it. And so Nathan Birbaum got very heavy in the Agoda. So from being the leader of the atheists, now he became the Secretary General of the Agoda Yisrael. So the, in 1919. So when you see that famous film, uh, you know, that we all saw recently on the on the internet with the Chavetz Chaim and all the rest of it, that's the Agoda Convention in Vienna in 1923. Maybe Birbaum, he might be there. I don't remember. Uh, but he was, a, you know, he was the the head of the secretariat, and he got involved in that. So what a change. He went from one extreme to another extreme. So it's not simply a guy who became um, Shomer Shabbos, which would be extremely impressive in the Europe of that time, right? But uh, he is now trying to organize the Haredim that they should take over the Jewish people. Well, we all know that's not going to, that didn't happen. And... <coughs> Also, when you get involved in a good of politics or any any kind of politics, it smells, you know. And so um, he ran into real realities. And the result was he became a person who writes a lot of articles and they were published in all the from journals and some non-from journals. And uh, he's always calling on the, 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 the Orthodox the Jews to, to you know, uh, live the ideals of Orthodox Judaism. It's a little bit, in my opinion... It's a little bit like reading Hirsch, in which he said, if you have dementia, so if the Jew would really keep all the mitzvah of the Torah, no kinna, no sinna, you know, uh, honest as the day is long, uh, not only Orachayim, uh, but also Chosh Mishpat, all that kind of stuff, uh, then, you know, this this itself would revolutionize how our children uh, raised, and we would we would be a noble tribe. You get it? We'd be a noble tribe, and this itself would bring the Mashiach. Uh, because there's no doubt, he said, we're living in in, in some kind of Ekvist of Mashiach. Uh, now, the 1920s went by and nothing happened. Uh, I mean, the Aguda was there and all the rest of it, but, you know, writing articles about Agudaism and all that, which he had a lot of these articles. There is no such thing as Agudaism. This was an idea that people tried to push. Uh, and I know they mean well, they mean a, a certain ideal, but the you know, is a front for existing constituencies. The yeshivas, the Hasidic, you know, that's what it was. Um, to that degree, it was successful. That degree, it was not successful. So, for a high-blown idealist like him, it wasn't the right vehicle. I think he was a frustrated guy. However, however, if you want to bring out about a uh, change in people, how do you do that? So here, as I said before, is the approach of a European elitist with a university education, all the rest of it. You have to find Yechidi school among the Hamunam, and you have to train these people to live exemplary lives and then hope that they'll, their example will spread elsewhere. And so Achana'am, they try to do this in a in a non-religious, in a secular atheistic way, called B'nai Moshe. So our hero tried to do with B'nai Aliyah. He said, we're going to form a club called B'nai Aliyah, Olim. You know, the name speaks for itself. And these people will try to live extra uh, special uh, exemplary lives. So it's the, and and hopefully, uh, and he lays out how that should be and all the rest of it. There, there were a number of people who thought along these lines in the 1920s and 30s. It didn't, didn't go anywhere, as we know. Uh, it shows you a high idealism. And um, it's, it's a very Jewish idea. 
It's the idea of Hasidus in the Mesilus Yisharim sense, which is you have the regular Jews, but you, you, every Jewish community needs Hasidim. Um, again, I mean in the old-fashioned term of Hasidim. You need some Hasidim to try to raise the quality of the regular Hamon, of the rest of us, right? Uh, so you need that. In his case, he used this kind of European kind of thought. There'll be a club, a society, and they'll have chapters, and you know, have central, you know, like the Boy Scouts, you know, have central um, um, conventions, and things like that. I repeat, he's not the whole Zeitland ideas like that. <coughs> what do these all represent? A person is a high idealist, but has no political power. and has no money. And so, uh, he lived, I guess, in Vienna, or was it in Germany? I, I don't remember exactly where he was living uh, during the, uh, the the 20s, I think in Germany. And his son became a, a, a Yiddish professor. Uh, and... Uh, what do you call it? Then he, when Hitler came to power, he moved to Holland. He was an old man. Uh, when he moved to Holland, and he died here three years later, so he died before the Holocaust. There he hooked up with some very from Agoda type Jews in Holland who were super anti-Zionist, as I said before. Super duper anti-Zionist. They started a Dutch Jewish anti-Zionist newspaper called The Roof. Call, and uh, uh, what do you call it? So this is what he was holding. But, you know, let's put it this way. He saw a world crash around him. Because if you're an old man, and now it's 1933, and now 34, and 35, and 36, uh, you see, this is the worst years in Jewish history. Because you see the coming Corbin, and nobody's doing anything about it. Right? And nobody's even planning to do anything about it. And the Jews in Europe are stuck, and they can't go anywhere. And um, so he never gave up this idea of the Olim. And I myself, I remember years ago, I cannot remember the name of the guy. It was somebody I knew in the 80s, was it? Menachem something's grandfather. Maybe it was Rabbi Nussbaum. I'm just uh, going back in memory. Ed, the yeshiva here in Baltimore asked me to help him edit some stuff he had. He was from Holland, I think. And he knew when he was young, Nathan Birnbaum. And he was like a member of the Olim Society. And he took this stuff very seriously. Uh, you see that they wanted to create a modern, perfect Orthodox Jew. A modern, perfect Orthodox Jew. Uh, we'll have all the, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a kind of European sort of uh, funny way. Uh, what's he talking about? He's talking about t- trying to bring Mashiach. I mean, that, that, that's what it is. Uh, and it's in that context that he died. Um uh, so he was lucky enough not to to die before Hitler, you know. Otherwise, he would have been picked up when the Germans took over uh, Holland. So w- w- what what do you see over here? What kind of person is this? This is not a guttle in a typical way. Uh, it's about Shuba in a very unusual way. Um, I can't think of another person who had such a commanding position in the anti-from world who then flipped. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't come to mind. Doesn't come to mind. Let's put it that way. Uh, and he didn't flip. I have to be very careful about it, because if he flipped, that would be weird. He went there slowly but surely, and in my opinion, he probably went there kicking and screaming. And that's a person with tremendous uh, amuna, because you're, the Yetzirah is fighting it, and the amuna is pushing it <laughs> anyway. You get it? That's, that, that's a very unusual story. Usually you see the other way around. The person from and, and the Sfekas are pushing, he's trying to fight against it. Here the Yetzirah Tov is pushing, and you're trying to resist it. The Yetzirah is pushing and trying to push back. Uh, you don't find that too often. And I think that makes a very interesting person. 
that's why they must have included him in these yard site lists or whatever because of his famous status. There were like four or five people of this type that I know about at that time. There was Jerry Longer and the Aaron Marcus and the Nathan Birnbaum, but you could count them on the fingers of a hand or so. Uh, it was much harder to become a BT 100 years ago than it is today. Things have uh, moved in a different direction after the Holocaust, and all these utopian ideas crashed. Uh, liberalism today is not viewed as being capable of delivering utopia. Uh, nationalism, certainly not. Marxism, certainly not. Socialism, certainly not. All the other types of Judaism, <clears throat> reform, conservative, uh, you know, tutti, frutti, shmuti, all the different types were promising utopia. That in this way, you'll be able to be a good Jew and have a perfect life in America or elsewhere. And all these movements are now in extreme desuetude and uh, weakening and dying away in, in front of our eyes. So the notion of somebody uh, being a utopian, at least having ideals. And as I said, we're not just being a piece of uh, 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 meat. Uh, and I only worry about my life here and now and all the rest of it. Uh, this is something that I think um, sort of... Uh, you know, captures the imagination, or ought to capture the imagination. And anyway, that's somebody I wanted to talk about today. Once again, I thank the Pollocks out in uh, Columbus. Stay safe, as we say, and happy birthday to Kathy. And with that, I wish you all a good evening. It's late. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com